Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, taking a look at Isaiah's word to us, Isaiah chapter 7. This is one of those great, great sections in all of the Bible. Chapter 7 through chapter 12 is one subsection of the entire book of Isaiah. It's more often than not referred to as the book of Emmanuel. Because in these five or six chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, six chapters... Emmanuel, the person of Emmanuel, is the central figure. Let me show you. If you look at chapter 7, we're going to look at this in a moment in a little more detail. But if you look at chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So in chapter 7, we have the origins of Emmanuel. We have the birth of of Emmanuel. We have Emmanuel's coming into our world. When you look at chapter 8, in chapter 8, the looming challenge for the Jewish people is the growing empire of Assyria to the far north. Assyria was located above what is present-day Syria. And so they are the growing empire. They're going to be... um, Uh, taking over from the uh, other kingdoms that were dominating that part of the region. And they're going to invade the land of Israel. So Isaiah, speaking about Assyria as God's instrument of judgment uh, in his hands to bring judgment on his people for their disobedience, he nevertheless says, if you look at verse 8, Speaking of Assyria, that they would sweep on into Judah, swirling over into it through the northern kingdom of Israel, all the way down into Judah, passing through it, reaching up to the very neck. Its outspread wings of the Assyrian Empire will cover the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, the Assyrians, but notice, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare the battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. Now, my translation, New International, it says, for God is with us. But in the Hebrew text, that's the translation of the name Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. So this should read, Propose your land, but it will not stand because of Emmanuel. So what Isaiah is telling us in chapter 8 is whose land the land of Israel belongs to. And it belongs to Emmanuel. In chapter 7, we have the birth of Emmanuel. Chapter 8, we have the land of Emmanuel. Emmanuel will allow the Assyrians to bring judgment to the Jewish people in the land, but only so far. We know historically that the Assyrian ruler, Sennacherib, moves his troops down through the land of, or the northern kingdom of Israel. And then from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah. As he approaches Jerusalem, he brings his armies on what is today known as Mount Scopus. Mount Scopus is where the Hadassah Hospital is located today. Mount Scopus is the place where the Hebrew University is also located. It's part of the chain of the area of the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, but to the northeast of it. 
Sennacherib moved all of his troops, 185,000, up on that ridge. And he overlooked the city of Jerusalem getting ready to attack it. That night, an angel of the Lord is sent by God into the camp of Sennacherib, and 185,000 men are killed. And thus, Sennacherib is forced to retreat. And thus, Jerusalem and the remainder of Judah is spared the onslaught by the Assyrians. Now, in this passage, Isaiah is saying that the northern nation of Assyria will be able to sweep into Judah, swirl of it, swirl through it, even to its very neck. But then in verse 9, the warning goes out. Do not think that because there is a moment in which Israel becomes an open prey to the nation of Assyria, that that means they are an open prey to all nations throughout all of history. Because in verse 9, he now says, listen, prepare for war, but now you will be shattered. Prepare, you distant lands, prepare for battle, but you will be shattered. And the reason why they will be shattered is because Emmanuel will protect his people. He will allow judgment to hit Israel on occasion, hit Israel or the Jewish people on occasion throughout history, but never will such judgment bring a full end to the Jewish people, for they are his chosen people. And so while the Assyrians are given permission to be the hand of God in chastising his people, that doesn't mean that Israel will be made a full end of. And verse 9 tells us why. Because Emmanuel will stand up for his people. So in chapter 7, we have the birth of Emmanuel. In chapter 8, we have the land of Emmanuel. Look at chapter 9. This is a great passage that I want to share with you next week. But here we have the person, the character of Emmanuel. In chapter 9, verse 6, we have those great verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice in verse 6, for to us a child is born. The previous child who would be born is told to us in chapter 7. The one who is called Emmanuel, the one born to a virgin. So in Isaiah 9, 6, the child born here is Emmanuel, mentioned in chapter 7. But here now we get more of his character. He's the one who is the wonderful counselor. We'll talk about that next week. He's the one who is El Gibor, the mighty God. He is the one who is Aviad, the father of eternities. He's the one who is Sar Shalom, the prince of peace. When we get to chapter 10, we read about the people of Emmanuel. Look at verse 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the faithful remnant, the survivors of the house of Jacob, they will no longer rely on him who struck them down. They will no longer look to other nations to protect them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And a remnant will return a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. The mighty God had been mentioned in chapter 9, verse 6. That's Emmanuel. They will return to their Messiah. They will return to Emmanuel. And though your people, O Israel, be like the sand of the sea, a remnant will return. So in chapter 10, we have the people of Emmanuel, the remnant that Emmanuel will regather unto himself at the end of of time and at the establishing of his kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the messianic age. Chapter 11, we have the kingdom of Emmanuel. It's in chapter 11 that we recite the words when we light the menorah and we're reminded of the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God rests on the King of Israel, who is Emmanuel. And his kingdom will be so wonderful and beautiful and peaceful that the lion will lay down with the lamb and children will play with animals that were at one time a, um, a threat to their very existence. So the kingdom will be established and the nations of the world will worship the king of Israel, the Messiah of the Jewish people. And then in chapter 12, the section of the book of Emmanuel closes, and we have praise 
for Emmanuel. I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry and you had chastised us, nevertheless, your anger has turned away and you have comforted us. God has become our salvation. The Lord is our strength and our song. Therefore, give thanks to the Lord and call on his name. So chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah's some of the most beautiful words of our Messiah anywhere in Scripture. Take a moment sometime to just read through those passages together. We're going to take a look at chapter 7, verse 14. Beginning at verse 1, Isaiah writes, When Ahaz, son of Juttham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rason of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, was the king of Israel, they marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower the city. City of Jerusalem, of course, is the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now notice the persons that are made reference to, beginning at verse 1. First of all, we have Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom of Israel. The events here are taking place about 750 years before the time of Yeshua the Messiah. It's taking place after the reign of Solomon. And after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel divided into two parts. The northern kingdom of Israel with its ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah with its two tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah was led by Ahaz, who was the king over the southern kingdom. Their capital was Jerusalem. In the north, there was uh, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, who is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel is uh, the uh, Rason, who is the king of Aram. Aram is the ancient name for Syria. So you had the northern kingdom of Israel, the foreign kingdom of Syria, in an alliance together. They make an alliance together because the Assyrians to the far north are the up-and-coming empire. They're threatening both Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. So these two kings of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are fearful that they will lose their kingdoms and perhaps lose their lives. How do we resist this king in the north, these Assyrians? They make an alliance. But unfortunately, their alliance isn't powerful enough to withstand the Assyrians. They also need the kingdom of Judah alongside of them. But Ahaz is not willing to become an ally with the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrians to fight the Assyrians. He doesn't want to be aligned with them because he does not want to instigate Assyria to attack them. He realizes that before they come to Judah, they're going to have to go through Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And he does not want to get involved in fighting the Assyrians. But the king of Aram and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel realize without an additional ally, they are not strong enough. So their plan is to attack Ahaz and the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem to take the kingdom from Ahaz and to set in its place another king who would be supportive of their alliance. So Isaiah is sent to Ahaz with a message from God. Isaiah is told to take his son, Shear Yeshub. Shear Yeshub means a remnant shall return. So along with his son, who is a young lad, he's to come before Ahaz and to tell Ahaz that he ought to trust in the living God because the threats by the king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel will not prosper, they will not be victorious, they will not be able to overthrow you. Ahaz is a wicked king. He's an unfaithful king. He is a king who has in all ways rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's on the throne because he's a descendant of David and therefore is entitled to the throne. 
but he's not a righteous man and a righteous ruler. So when Isaiah comes to him, he's not very happy that the prophet of God is coming to him at this time. And so Isaiah is giving him a positive message. And he tells him, don't worry about these two kings. They are just firebrands in the fire. They're just smoking uh, ashes in the fire. They put out a lot of steam, but there's no real bite to them whatsoever. And so that you will know this to be true, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord. He says, ask the sign. It could be anything you want to ask. God is going to do it for you so that you will see he's the true God. And he means what he says through his prophet. He says, ask anything as high as the heavens or as deep into the inner recesses of the earth. Ask anything you want in all of the universe. But Ahaz is an unrighteous man. He doesn't want to deal with God or his prophet. So he says, I will not test the Lord. Making reference to Deuteronomy, where we are told we should not put the Lord to the test. But his words are self-righteous words. When the Lord tells you, ask a sign. Now to fail to ask for a sign would be tantamount to disobedience. And so Ahaz in a self-righteous display, says, I will not tempt the Lord. I won't test him. But Isaiah says, you are to ask for a sign. When Ahaz refuses to give a sign, Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, the sign that the Lord must give must be so outrageous Because he just told Ahaz, ask a sign as high as the heavens. Ask it as deep as the inner recesses of the earth. Almost like from heaven and hell, ask anything you want. And therefore, he's giving Ahaz the opportunity to ask for the most outrageous sign you can think of. Ahaz refuses, but God's pretty creative. And the Lord can come come up with some pretty outrageous signs. And so God, through Isaiah, says, then the Lord himself will give you a sign, such as it is characteristic of being as high as the heavens, as unbelievable as high as the heavens are, as deep as the earth is below. A virgin will bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, the reason this is important is because there's been much dispute over this word translated virgin. It's the Hebrew word Alma. It appears only seven times in all of the Old Testament. One place is in the book of Genesis, I'm going to say around chapter 23 or 4 or so, where Eliezer is told to get a wife for Isaac. Rebekah will become that wife. And when he is told to look for this woman, she is to be an Alma. Earlier, she is referred to as a Betula, which also can be translated young woman or virgin. But interestingly enough, in the Hebrew text, when it says Betula, it also has the added phrase, one who has not known in sexual relations, one who has not known a man. But with the word Alma, there's no characteristic, there's no description. Why? Because the word Alma was understood to be that of a virgin. Rebecca is so called. In this book, The Song of Solomon, Solomon makes distinctions between the women who are members of his harem. Some of the women are his wives. He had like 700 and something wives. Those wives had the possibility, at least one of them, or more than one, of becoming his queen. He also had among his harem, the scripture tells us, concubines. They were there to satisfy his sexual desires. They were not his wives, and they could not become his queen. But then there was a third group of women. 
They were the almot. They were the ones who as yet were not ones who had known a man sexually. The word alma must mean virgin in the Song of Solomon because the almot are distinguished from the wives and the concubines. There's also another interesting passage I really love and found in the book of Proverbs where Solomon talks about the grace, the mystery, and the beauty of four things. He says there are four things that just are beyond a person's understanding because they're so full of grace, they're so full of mystery, and so full of beauty. He says one is the eagle that is in flight. Well, you know that when you walk through some of the uh, trails here in California and you get to see the birds and sometimes they're eagles in flight, I suppose. And when those birds just open their wings, even hawks are pretty interesting to watch. Their movement in flight is mysterious. How do they handle those uh, the waves of air that are thermals? They're just waves, just like waves in the water. Thermals are waves of air currents. And they don't flap their wings. They don't, you know, they just gracefully, beautifully, mysteriously capture them and they just fly almost effortlessly. He says the beauty of the eagle in flight is beyond, you know, understanding. If you're into sailing, and as you know, I am, Solomon writes, The mystery of a boat at sea, driven by the wind, and can be, the sails can be shaped in such a way that no matter which way the wind is blowing, you can get to your destination. And if you've ever been on a boat, a sailboat, in beautiful weather, there is nothing more gracious, more mysterious, and more beautiful than a boat, man, just going right through the water. I'll tell you, when we used to sail all the time, we'd look at each other and we'd just shake, you know, we just would nod our head. We can't imagine how the wind can take, and ours was a small boat, a 5,000-pound boat, and push it through the water at six, seven knots, and we'd get to the other side of the lake. You know, every time we would just think of it, man, the wind blowing at just 10 knots or eight knots is pushing, pulling this boat right across. It was always really kind of a mystery to us how it worked. And it was wonderful to experience. He says it's the mystery of a snake that slithers on a rock. Again, you know, somewhat effortlessly, gracefully, doesn't slip off and say, you know, but just, just sort of is in control and it's mysterious and it's beautiful and it's grace in motion. And then he says, a man with his alma, love, you know, passionate love. When it is right, it is beautiful, it is mysterious, and it's graceful. The word alma there must mean a virgin with her uh, husband or bride, bridegroom. And then we have Isaiah 7:14, where he says, an alma will conceive. Now, if it's just a young woman, how is that a sign that is comparable to the heavens above and the inner recesses of the earth below? You know, it's like, that's normal, <laughs> you know? He says, ask a sign that's like out of the world. And it's just a young woman's going to have a child? I mean, come on. No, he means something absolutely unbelievable is what I'm going to do to show you that I'm a God of my word. Introducing the section, Isaiah says, Hine, behold. Everywhere in the book of Isaiah where Hine is used, it introduces a miracle. And so Isaiah means to speak of a miraculous thing God is about to do. Now, you might say, but wait a minute. Okay, I got it. It's a great miracle, okay? Maybe God really can have a virgin conceive. And maybe Hine is used that way. How in the world, if you're thinking about this being fulfilled in the life of Jesus, the Messiah, how in the world is an event 750 years after 
Isaiah writes this, any relevance to Isaiah, to Ahaz, to whom he is speaking. Everybody follow me with that? Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz. And now he's going to tell him about something that if we believe it's fulfilled in Yeshua the Messiah, occurs 750 years later. So how does this 750 year event later have any relevance to Ahaz here and now? And so if you look at your text, let me show you something that's really neat. Because in Isaiah 7.14, the pronouns change. In the previous verses up through verse 14, and 13 and 14, the pronouns are second person singular. So when he talks to Ahaz, he's saying, you, Ahaz, do you weary our God? Will you ask for a sign? He's talking to Ahaz, second person singular. But in verse 13, when he says, then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. The you there is second person plural. So he's not talking to Ahaz, but rather we know who he's talking to, the house of David. He's talking to the Davidic dynasty that Ahaz represents. And the Davidic dynasty is made up of a variety of people, past and present and future, who are to take the throne of David. So now in verse 13, he's not saying, Ahaz, this is for you. Will you, plural, try the patience of my God? Let's just speak like we're from Dallas. I spent a little time down there. Not that I enjoyed all my time down there, but if we were to be like our Texan uh, brothers down there, brethren down there, then Isaiah said, Hear now you all, house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you all try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you all a sign. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and you all will call him Emmanuel. So the sign of the virgin-born child is not a sign to Ahaz about the two kings whose efforts to destroy you will come to naught. The virgin-born child, Emmanuel, is a sign to the Davidic dynasty. And as a sign to the Davidic dynasty, Isaiah is saying, look, if you ever are concerned that the Davidic dynasty will be destroyed, so that there will never be a king to sit on the Davidic throne. Have no fear, because when Emmanuel appears, that's the one who is to inherit David's throne. This tells us a couple of things. This tells us, first of all, Emmanuel must appear before the opportunity to recognize the Davidic dynasty is lost. We no longer can determine who is a descendant of David today. Why? Because the records were destroyed in the destruction of the temple, 70 AD. So in order for Emmanuel to appear and we to know him as a sign to David, then the records that record who are descendants of David cannot be lost. We have to be able to determine and justify and prove that this child is indeed a son of David. That means the records have to be intact. They cannot be destroyed before Messiah comes or the Emmanuel comes. The records were destroyed in 70 AD. Therefore, Emmanuel must, appear before, must have appeared before 70 AD because we have no way of proving you are actually a descendant of David today. So he had to have appeared before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and its records. And notice this one who is to be born will be called God with us. Now, when we look at the Brit Hadashah, and if you would turn with me there very briefly, and you look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew tells us of the birth of Messiah. He tells us that the angel Gabriel, or had appeared to Mary, and told her what God is going to do. That the Spirit of God would come upon her. And she would conceive by means of God's empowerment by his Spirit. Verse 20 of chapter 1. And that Mary would give birth to a son. 
and they would give him the name Yeshua, God is salvation. Now look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew understood that what happened in the life of Yeshua was in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, but Yeshua was called Yeshua, not Emmanuel. So how is this a fulfillment of that passage? We have to understand in the ancient world, kings oftentimes bore more than one name. Kings were, had their own names that they were born with, but they also were given enthronement names. For example, Solomon had an enthronement name. His name was Jedidiah. And we know, we're going to make reference to this, that Jeconiah also had another name by which he was called Coniah. And Yeshua, who is the promised Messiah and King of Israel, has another name. He's called God with us. He has another name. He's called the Almighty God. He has another name. He's called the Everlasting Father. He has another name called Wonderful Counselor. He has another name called Sar Shalom. He has many names as the kings of Israel. Why does he have so many day, names when other kings had maybe one other name? Because he's the king of all kings. Because he's the Messiah of Israel. And all these kings are to accentuate his rightness to the throne. And not only his rightness to the throne but to accentuate his character. He is God Almighty. He is the Prince of Peace, as he will bring peace to this world, even as he's brought peace already to our hearts and has made us to have peace with God. He's the one who's the Father of eternity. The meaning there is he's the creator of eternity. He's the one who makes eternity. That's kind of weird to think about. You just thought that eternity just is all of time. No, it is not. It's what God makes. He exists outside of eternity as the eternal God. He makes time and even endless time. Because time, endless time, is not God. He stands apart from the things he makes. Therefore, he is the everlasting father. He's the creator of eternality. That's why it says in Colossians, he holds all things together. He holds it all together because he's made it all, and he's made it all in time and space, which didn't exist till he called all things into existence. That's why Genesis 1-1 is so profound. In the beginning, God had to say something for it to be. No other religion has that concept. And that's because all other ideas are false. The God of the Bible is the true God. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. He's the one who makes reality occur. For he is the embodiment of it all. The father of eternity. Kind of weird things, I know. But the names of Messiah reveal this mysterious character. The grace of him. And the beauty of our Savior. The wonderful counselor. But now I want to share, share with you one other thing. You might say, well, that is a pretty wild miracle, <laughs> a virgin conceiving. And you might agree, okay, I got it. That is for the house of David. And therefore, uh, I can see how that is fulfilled in Yeshua. Now, what is the sign to Ahaz? The sign to Ahaz, of course, is the son of Isaiah. He was told to take his son, Shear Yeshub, a remnant shall return with him. And thus he says, when that child shall grow up to know between right and wrong, know that the two kings of the north, their efforts against you will fail. There are two sons in this passage. There's the Emmanuel son and there's the Shear Yeshub son. The Shear Yeshub son is a sign to Ahaz in the very present. And he was a young lad. The word there is for anyone that could be a child three, four years old. He was a young lad. And when he grows up, by the time he's able to distinguish good, right from wrong, make moral choices, those kings in the north will have already been destroyed by the Assyrians. It takes place within about five years. And they are destroyed. So here's another neat thing. All the prophets of Israel gave both near and far prophecies. 
Far prophecies, or I should say near prophecies, by which we can test the prophet to see if his words come true. Far prophecies, so we can have hope in believing what he said will come to pass. How do we believe that what he says about the future will happen? We can believe those words because what he says about the present occurs. So for Ahaz, he gave him a near prophecy. My son, when he grows up, before he's able even to choose right and wrong, those kings will be destroyed. That's the near prophecy fulfilled in Ahaz's life and the sign to Ahaz. But along with that near prophecy is a far prophecy, 750 years off from here. That when the Messiah comes, he will be Emmanuel. And he's not assigned to you, Ahaz, specifically. He's assigned to the whole house of David of which you are a part. When he appears, know that the king has come. So there are two signs here. So we raise the question, is this really a miracle? Well, it must comport to as high as the heavens or as deep as the recesses of the earth. We must deal with the word Alma. It means virgin. By the way, in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, about 200 years before the New Testament, the Greek word there is Parthenos. It's the word virgin. Those Jewish translators of the Old Testament back 150 years before the time of Jesus, they had no axe to grind. And they understood Alma means virgin and chose the Greek word that specifically and only means virgin. So we have to deal with that word Alma. Can't dance around that. And we have to deal with the word Hine, behold, always introducing a miracle. We have to deal with the hev- as high as the heavens or as deep as the earth. It has to be outlandish. can't just be something that we're impressed with. It has to be utterly ridiculous. And then we have to deal with the two sons. Now, here's one other thing that's really powerful about this passage. Look at Matthew one more time. We look at chapter 1, which is the genealogy of Messiah. More often than not, when we read genealogies, we just pass over them. Because it's hard to pronounce the names, let alone think that there's any significance here. But Messiah's genealogy, there's always significance somewhere to be found. So when you look at the genealogy of Yeshua, notice this in verse 1. The genealogy of Yeshua HaMashiach, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Isn't it interesting? David precedes Abraham, though not chronologically. So that tells us what the theme is about. It's about David. He's the son of David. Otherwise, he would have said Abraham and David, but he doesn't. He's the son of David and, of course, Abraham. So the focus here is on his Davidic connection. You'll notice also that Matthew will say, I think it's in verse 17, that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian captivity to the time of Messiah. Well, when we do get all those names together, there aren't 14 generations between each. But Matthew is picking out the names he wants to pick out in order to make 14 between each. So you ask, well, what's so significant about 14? Well, think about this. In Hebrew, the letters are also numbers. So if you want to write a number, you would write a number with letters. So now if we take David's name, David, and in Hebrew, there are no vowels. So David's name is D-A-V-I-D, but we take the vowels out. A and I, it leads us with DVD. And so the letter Dalid, the letter Dalid, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid is number four. And the letter Vav, for the V sound, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid, Hey, Vav, six. And then we have another Dalid, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid, four. So that's a total of how much? Fourteen. So when Matthew writes the genealogy of Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham, that there are 14 generations, though there really are more. 14 is the number of David. And all in the line of Yeshua in Matthew's account are all in the Davidic kingdom, right? They're all Davidic kings. Take a look, for example, at verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the the father of Abijah. All the way down, and we have all the kings of Israel following Solomon. This is the royal line of Messiah. This is the kingly line. 
Now, if you turn over to Luke chapter 3, where we have Luke's account of the genealogy of Messiah, it's a little different in terms of how it's laid out. Matthew starts with Abraham and leads us all the way to Yeshua. When Luke writes the genealogy, he starts with Yeshua and goes all the way down to Adam. So he starts at the back end or the front end, depending on how you look at it. Matthew started with Abraham and worked his way up to Messiah. Luke starts with Messiah, worked his way down to Adam. So now take a look at Luke's account, chapter 3, and look at verse 31. Now we have to read this backwards, right? So let's go down to verse 31. We have Salmon. And Solomon was the father of who? Boaz. Everybody follow me? Don't follow me or I'll call the cops. No, you go, we're going backwards, right? So you're looking at verse 31. You've got Nashon is the last name mentioned, right? And then before Nashon is Solomon. You have to look at it in order to see it. Then you have Solomon. And then the, fa- the father of Solomon was, uh, excuse me, the son of Solomon was Boaz. The father of Obed was Boaz. Obed was the father of Jesse. Everybody still with me? Jesse was the father of David. Now, who is David the father of? What does Luke say? Nathan. It's different than Matthew, right? Because who was David's son in Matthew's account? Solomon. David's son in Luke's account is Nathan. So Mary's line, which is in Luke, she's a son of David, but not in the royal line. She's the son of a different son of David, Nathan. But Joseph, whose line we read in Matthew 1, is the son of David. Thus, he's in the royal line. Everyone with me? So now here's the reason this is important. Because we would ask the question, why is the virgin birth even needed? Or is it needed at all? Is it just that God wanted to say, I'm going to do something really crazy and they're not going to believe this? Or was there a purpose to it? And so what is the purpose? Let's go back to Matthew. Just so that you see the difference in the lines. If you look back at Matthew in chapter 1... Go down to verse 12. In verse 12, it says, After the exile to Babylon, notice, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And the royal line continues. So Jeconiah is an important figure for us to take note of. So one more turn of the page. Look at Jeremiah chapter 22. I know this is sort of a long way around the barn, but... All of these pieces have to kind of be put together. But in Jeremiah chapter 22, look at verse 24. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah existed during, just prior to the Babylonian captivity. In Matthew's account, we just read, after the captivity, Jeconiah was the father of, after the exile to Babylon, right at the time of the exile, Jeconiah is the father of Shealtiel. Now look at Jeremiah 22. As surely as I, say, I de- live, declares the Lord, even if you, Je- Jehoiakim, that's his enthronement name, his name is Jeconiah, it's the same man, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, That is the ring by which the kings would make their decrees and their decrees would stand. He says, even if you were that critical to my being, I would still pull you off of my hand. Look what he says. I will hand you over to those who seek your life. Those you fear. To Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. He will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country, the Babylonian. Babylonia where neither of you were born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, a despised, broken pot? 
an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into the land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord, speaking to Israel, the land. This is what the Lord says, record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime because none of his offspring will prosper None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Now, this is a problem because God promised David he would always have a son to reign on the throne in the Davidic promise, 1 Samuel 7. But now he just told, that is God, told a descendant of David, none of your descendants will sit on David's throne. So here's the question. How does God fulfill his promise to David to have his son sit on a throne when he just cursed one of David's sons in saying, none of your sons who are David's great, 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 great grandsons will ever sit on the throne? That's the dilemma. A promise needs to be filled to to David, but a curse has to be fulfilled on one of David's children. So how does God fulfill the promise to David and yet the curse on Jeconiah? And the answer is the virgin birth. It's not just something that God thought up to wow us. (laughs) It's an essential part of his revelation. Because if the Messiah is in any way connected really as a descendant of David, Because one of David's sons under David and all his posterity are judged, they can't sit on the throne. But the virgin birth permits the Messiah to be a son of David by virtue of Joseph and therefore of the royal heritage. And yet a son of David by Mary, who is not of the royal lineage because the son of David in Luke's account was who? Nathan. So Nathan's not of the royal line, therefore he's not cursed. And thus the Messiah can come from the line of David through Mary, really, and sit on David's throne because of Joseph's royal lineage. But it doesn't taint the Messiah because he's not actually born of Joseph. He's actually born of Mary and the work of the Spirit of God. Is that not wild to think about? I mean, the neat thing is the parts fit together. We're not asked to believe something that's pie in the sky. We're asked to believe something that makes sense. It may be unbelievable, quote unquote, but it makes sense. Therefore, the virgin birth is an essential part of God's plan to bring the Messiah to us. And God made it hard for himself. (laughs) A virgin must conceive, and the descendant can't be an actual descendant. And God, in his mysterious ways, and in his omniscience by which he knows all things, is able to provide Messiah. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is don't be like Ahaz. That in our self-righteousness, we don't believe God. We go through all the religious motions, but we don't really believe him. We don't really trust him, and we don't really anticipate him to do miraculous things. We live in a day and age where perhaps in a nation where miracles are on the periphery of our experience, if at all. But don't be deluded. The transformed life, the gift of salvation, are miracles of miracles. And there are miracles that God would do for us if we would ask him and ask him rightly. As James says, you don't have because you don't ask. But if we might ask, like Ahaz was told to ask, imagine what he might have seen. But he didn't get to see as much as we could now see because the sign we see 
is the sign God himself would give us. And so the challenge is for us not to miss that sign, not to reject that sign, not to ignore that sign, but to fully embrace it and thereby anticipate all kinds of great things the Lord will do in and through us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful prophecy in the heart of the book of one of your greatest prophets, at least from our perspective. And we thank you for Emmanuel who has come and is with us here and now. Even as he says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst. And so Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us. During this season, O Lord, may we not be entrapped by the religiosity that oftentimes surrounds us during this time. But may our faith be genuine. May our relationship with you be true. And thus may we experience the miracle of the new birth in our hearts. And may we experience many more miracles throughout the course of our lives. And perhaps we've experienced many already that we simply need our eyes to be open to in order to appreciate and rejoice over. So, Lord, do increase our faith during this time and enable us to walk more and more faithfully before you. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.